Hi, this is Jordan Shively. And this is Brock Wilbur. And you're listening to Caring Into the Void, the podcast where we get together, we tell each other about a weird or a dark story we've heard, and then we try to find the silver lining or flip it around into something that, while probably not positive, is at least be productive. <laughs> How are you doing today, Brock? It's been a while since we did one of these. Uh, apologies to our listeners. Uh, sometimes it turns out that life is uh, awful. I, I know that we make light of that on the show sometimes, but uh, sometimes it's hard to overcome. But here we are. We're back. We did it. We're recording. Jordan, how are you? <laughs> yeah, we don't try to complain about our actual lives in this show, but I do feel like this summer I've been living in the laziest Final Destination movie of all time where like, oh, my God, that's such a good description of your summer. The specter of death is after me. But, you know, he's just like, eh, you know, see you again in two weeks. A car ran into my house, like hit the wall and like did the whole blow up thing. But then it was like, oh, I didn't get you. You were at the grocery store when it happened. I'll see you in a bit. Maybe it'll be stress next time. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, yeah, it's just like one thing after another this summer that has all piled up for us not to be able to do this. But here we are. Here we are. We're back. We survived. We continue to survive. And we thank you guys for listening and, and, and waiting it out with us. All right. So this time I'm going to be talking about a story that is going to have me mispronouncing so many French words. So everyone get ready for some horrible French because I'm talking about the Beast of Jevadon. <laughs> oh, my God. It's already off to such a good start. So this is a story of a supposed rampage of a wolf-like creature that held all of France in thrall of terror in, like, the 1700s. And this is where that movie, The Brotherhood of the Wolf, got a lot of its story from. Oh, wow. I love that. Yes. Yeah, so, um, there isn't quite as much um, wire foo in it, but... Uh, <laughs> so the majority of the beast victims were women and children working in fields, and the accounts mostly tell of... It dropping onto its victim and ripping out its throat and sometimes the entire head. Um, it was very, they were very specific talking about how it was wanted to feast on the throats of all these people, which will be important later on. Um, the Beast of Jevadan carried out its first recorded attack early in the summer of 1764. A young woman who was tending cattle in Merquar forest near Langongni. In the eastern part of Jevadan, yeah, they <laughs> saw the beast come at her. However, the bulls in the herd charged the beast, keeping it at bay. So it tried to get to her through the animal she was tending, and then they drove it off. Like, it like, just gave up on her. But she said she saw a huge beast try to get her. Shortly, though, hmm. the first official victim was recorded. 14-year-old Jeanne Boulet was killed near the village of Les Cubacs, near the town of Langogne. By the late December of 1764, rumors were circulating that it was a pair of beasts that were behind the killings, because the killings were starting to stack up. This was because there was such a high number of attacks, not all fatal, that in such a short space of time that it many appear to have been recorded at the same time. Um, so some people have said maybe it was like a, a pair of animals or something like that. On January 12th, however, of 1765, Jacques Portefeu and seven friends were attacked by the beast. 
After several attacks, they drove it away, though, because they stayed grouped together. And like, even for a big beast, a group of seven people is kind of a crazy thing to attack. The encounter, eventually, the important part of this the part of the story is it came. This is what brought it to the attention of Louis the Fifteenth, who gave three hundred libras, liars, or I don't know how to say that, to Portafu and another three hundred and fifty of their monetary number to be shared among his companions. <laughs> the king also was being like his shitty kingness. He's like, oh, you're going to be educated at the state's expense, blah, blah, blah. But he did now swear that the French state would help find and kill the beast. So first he sent, and this is a person a long line of royal beast hunters that were sent out, which seems like the beginning of a good video game. But <laughs> first he sent Captain Duhamel of the Clermont Farad Dragoons in his trips to be sent to Legevade. Although extremely zealous in his efforts, he was overzealous and extremely rude with everyone who was living in the area. Very kind of high hoity-toity with them. So they, nobody locally would cooperate with them or help them. So his efforts were stalled out. He says that on several occasions he almost shot the beast, but he was hampered by the incompetence of his guards. Um, at this point, yeah, at this point, you can just see this guy in your mind, too. At this point, yes. Duhamel also started telling wild tales about the size of the beast and having crazy strategies for them. Like he would dress his hunters like women and send them out amongst the harvesters to hope they would get jumped. What the fuck? <laughs> he also started using the corpses of victims as bait. What the fuck? Hoping that they would come back and continue feasting. So that did not go well with the peasants where it's like, oh, your son was just attacked and mauled. We're going to take his corpse as bait. Because um, they are also, I assume, very religious at this time. Um, by this point, it wasn't just Duhamel who was giving the beast monstrous proportions. It was being described by everyone now as as these things happen as a much bigger than a normal wolf. I like that Duhamel seems like this. Duhamel seems like this gritty reboot of Gaston. Oh, one hundred percent. But like even more, but totally incompetent though. Because like right. Gaston might be a jerk, but man, he did have some pelts under his belt. But then he's like, oh, I, I missed the shot on the beast because of my men here. They're so bad at their jobs, yeah. dumb men. <laughs> yeah, I totally see. Oh, I can't remember that, the actor's name. So people started saying that, oh, it's a hyena hybrid. And then the best one of all the different wild suppositions was that it was a huge fucking monkey. Um, because apparently some American person who was in the court at that time um, said, yeah, we got crazy monkeys back in America. They do this shit all the time. And everyone believed them. Um, so that was our thing that we helped add to it. Also, there was a bit of classes victim the, blaming. The, the murders at the Rue Morgue twist. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what if they were just like in court and they're reading that story? I don't know if these dates line up, but and they just look up. Oh, yes. It's just like the monkeys in the oh Rue. So at this point, there was a lot of classes victim blaming being handed down too. like, why are these peasants hanging out in these dangerous area? I mean, the answer is because this the is the only... fields where they work? Yeah. So this, the answer is this the only place you've left them to fucking live, Louis. Um, oh, God. So Duhamel finally started yelling and telling stories about the excuse of the beast. He had found out the beast was a witch of the devil whose job was to outwit hunters. Because that's a thing. Oh, my God. At this point, Louis Fifteenth was like, all right, you're incompetent. And then he, so he's agreed to send two professional wolf hunters... And I wonder if these are the ones that the story 
that the movie are based on, but I don't know. Um, it was Jean-Charles Marc-Antoine Aubamacel de Enavelle and his son, Jean Frank. On February 17th, 1776, they brought eight bloodhounds that they had trained in wolf hunting, and over the next four hunts, four months, they hunted what just Eurasian wolves, believing them to be the beast. But the attacks continued. So they were just like immediately kicked out. They were replaced in June 1765 by Francois Antoine. Like, this is a, there's a lot of people who tried to do this. The king's personal arquebus bearer and lieutenant of the hunt, who arrived in Le Mazou on June 22nd. On September 20th, a few months later, Antoine did kill a large gray wolf measuring three feet high and six feet long, which I guess is big for a wolf. Like, I guess in my mind, wolves are movie wolves, which are not as big as actual wolves, which are way bigger than actual wolves. So I guess like right. a wolf that is as long as I am tall and it comes up to middle of my chest is a pretty big wolf. That's like dire wolf size. Like if you're thinking of like Game sure. of Thrones where it stands next to them, that's like dire wolf. So that is fucking huge and weighed 130 pounds. The wolf was named the Loup de Chazé after the nearby Abbe de Chazé was said to have been quite large for a wolf. Antoine officially stated, we declare by the present report signed from our hand, we never saw a big wolf that could be compared to this one. Henceforth, we believe this could be the fearsome beef that does cause so much damage. That's like total lawyer speak too. Uh, the animal was further identified as the culprit by attack survivors who recognized the scars on its body inflicted by all the de victims defending themselves because several people had fought it off. The wolf was stuffed and sent to Versailles where Antoine's son, de Botton, was received as a hero. Antoine, though, stayed in the Auvergne wolves to chase down the female partner and her two grown cubs. He succeeded in killing the wolf and one of the cubs and they said the cub was already larger than the mother. And they said when they examined it, it appeared to have a double set of dew claws, which is crazy. Um, the other cub was shot and hit and was believed to have died while retreating, but no body was found. And Antoine kept this apparently to himself in the official reports because he wasn't going to mention that a wolf had been shot and got away, just like all the other stories. Um, so he got a bunch of money and fames and titles and rewards. However, in December 2nd of 1765, the beast attacked again. Two boys this time, one six and one twelve. It tried to drag the youngest one off, but the older brother successfully fought it off. Um, there are several accounts at this time of this kind of thing happening where one was a pregnant woman and her son who the son ran to the house and came out with a lance and attacked the thing that was dragging his mother off. Um, none of this looked good for the hunters who couldn't kill it, but all these children were fighting it off. Um, the killing of, the, of a creature that finally marks the official end to the story, even though it continued afterwards, but they say was a local hunter named Jean Chastel who shot it on the slopes of Mount Moucher, which is called the Sogne de Auvers, during a hunt organized by a local nobleman. Man, all these historians love putting every fucking name ever in this story. The Marquis <laughs> de Apachier on June 19, 1767. 
They said that Chastel shot the creature with a large caliber bullet in Chevrotin's combination. I guess that's a grape shot made by himself with silver, which we're starting to get some of the, the supernatural elements in here, or at least the superstitions. The beast was thought to be, have been brought to the, to the castle of the Marquis de Abshare, and then it says, weirdly wording, it was abducted by Dr. Boulanger, um, a surgeon at the Sognue, and they said the report of the necropsy was transpired and said that it had human remains in its stomach. Um, there's a lot more recorded stuff about the wolf and how by the time it was brought to the king, it was all rotten and hard to tell what it was. Um, and he was really mad, actually, and like kicked everyone out, <laughs> saying, "Why'd you bring a this rotten corpse?" Seems like he did. He's like more upset that he had to smell something than being like, "Oh, the thing I asked you to do is done." Um, there was even a lot of conspiracy theories that maybe it was a prank, and that these were wolves or dogs trained by someone, which is a pretty fucked up prank, you know? I mean, ha ha! Prank. I killed hundreds of people with these dogs, and you thought it was a wolf. Oh my god. I, I did read, and that part is also in that movie, Fellowship of the Wolf, Brotherhood of the Wolf, because, spoilers, like, it ends up being, like, the crazy, like, nobleman and having, like, an armored wolf or something like that. And then he, like, fights with the Volo Whip or whatever. Um, <laughs> I read some later research from National Geographic, and they seem extremely, com- like, confident that it conclusively can be said that it, from descriptions, that it was an escaped subadult male lion. What? <laughs> that there was just that there was an escaped subadult lion. You know, before it gets its mane, it's got like the ridge up its back, and the and the dots and oh, spots okay. on the side. They were all saying all this matchups, and specifically what matches up is the fact that it would maul the throat and kill by breaking airway, which is well, I guess according I'll trust National Geographic that that is how subadult male lions kill. Um, they, they spent some time looking at lions, but whatever it was, it fed into and helped foster a lot of the burgeoning werewolf stories that became a part of French folklore for good. And I'm sure in the future, we'll talk about some of the specific where French werewolf tales that came from this. But for now, we're going to leave it at that. It was maybe a huge fucked up wolf that was trained by a creepy count. <laughs> so that's the story of the beast Javadan. I love that, and I love that the twist at the end was "What if it was a weird lion?" Like yeah. that's such a weird turn for it to take. I mean, it's possible. There was all these crazy like menageries at the time and stuff. And what if a, a lion did get out and was living in the wolves? Living in the wolves? What if he was living in the wolves, Brock? Um, oh my god! <laughs> living in the woods, just like mauling people and then like running off you know because it was confused (laughs) that ties pretty directly into the caring and the void moment you were born to be exactly the gloriously strange beast that you are those who hunt you with their torches and hate want to make you into something else something they can hold aloft to show their superiority but you you are strong you walk the deep ways of the dark and true. They will be no match for your teeth, which are so many and sharp. And they will soon find how the only thing you are lacking, the only thing they have that you don't, is fear. I like that a lot. That was fun. 
So yeah, that's the the big crazy wolf story of France. Also, got to rewatch Brotherhood of the Wolf now. <laughs> I know. As I was like doing this research, I'm like, I remember there being some cool shit in that movie. I remember only watching it because uh, the director of it was uh, went on to do Silent Hill, and I remember oh, when God. it was announced, I was like, <laughs> I gotta check this out. And now, in retrospect, it's like, oh yeah, sometimes uh, some of the problems of that film are the problems of a first-time English language director. So that's uh, yes, it was. It had on um, what's his name in it. Uh, wow, his name is not on the fucking poster. Okay, never mind. Um, yeah, so. That is that story. What you got for us? Uh, I've I've got one here. Uh, which I, now that we've been doing the show long enough, sometimes people reach out to be like, "Hey, here's something you should cover." Uh, but a friend of mine <laughs> reached out with like, "Here's a story that you should absolutely cover." It's a thing that happened to us, and I was like, "Oh, what is it?" And they're like, "We live in a house from 1919, but in our attic, we found a newspaper from 1917." What? Uh, and I was like, how long do you think it took to t- build a house back then? Like, is, is, is it, is it the ghost of a paper that was two years old at the time? I don't understand what was supposed to be the, the scary part there, but like, yeah, that, that newspaper lived a whole t- two years before it was there. I don't know. Now that, that was the story they wanted you to tell. Yeah. I was like, so what's, what's paragraph two, man. So at some point after this house was made, someone unpacked their luggage and in that luggage, there were dishes wa- wrapped with an old newspaper that then ended up in the attic. Anyway, in the carrying into the void moment, I think we should all unpack what exists inside of us. Uh, so mine's about the Borley Rectory, but it's also about automatic writing, uh, which is automatic writing has always fascinated me. So there's two forms of automatic writing. First is like uh, a ghost uh, either comes into your space or or sort of takes over your body and makes you like scrawl stuff on the walls. Uh, and then you're like, Oh shit, where'd that wall scrawl come from? But, uh, most other automatic writing takes the form of like, you invite the ghost into you, uh, or, you know, there's a, I guess there's sort of a level of consent, uh, in that form of automatic writing. And you're like, spirit, show me what you got. Uh, and that, uh, you just start moving your hand and you let the spirit guide you. And then the spirit gets things out there. Uh, and people sell automatic writing kits. And like, I, I enjoyed trying it every once in a while. Cause I'm like, you know, I spent enough time writing words are going to come popping out. It's just muscle memory. Maybe something interesting is there. Uh, but some of these, uh, these kits, uh, also have stuff that are like, uh, oh, if, if it just looks like a giant scribble, uh, that's, uh, that's just the ghost's handwriting. And it's just like, okay, buddy, that's amazing. That's <laughs> How we cover up for anything. But like, there's a lot of people that like famously throughout history, like, uh, Tolkien, uh, the, the first few lines of, uh, Hobbit, uh, he claims are from automatic writing. He looked down and, and like, he didn't think of the word Hobbit and the first few sentences were there. Uh, and, and there's other people throughout history that have done a lot of automatic writing, especially in the worlds of like music, uh, where people like Rosemary Brown claimed that like Bach, Beethoven and Chopin were like, transmitting notes through them and and notes seems uh easier to to fake than uh, letters uh because you can put any note on a staff and like that's that is a music i guess <laughs> uh, but in, in researching this i did also find just a shocking amount of uh, christian websites letting people know don't do this because it's the most dangerous thing that you can do uh and and i found a website that actually lists off that if if you do this 
you've lost uh, the the legal rights to a demon. And I was like, what does that mean? And and they have a list of all like the the legal rights that you give to a demon by inviting them in, like in in Christian ghost legally legalese based upon the laws of the United States of America. Yeah, yeah, the United States of America's ghost laws. Oh, please tell me there's secret demon court in America. Oh, don't say that on the podcast. That's for our RPG we're making. Uh, <laughs> demon lawyer, secret, RPG. Secret demon court, uh, single female demon lawyer. Uh, yes, let's make that immediately. Uh, but it also says that like one of the things that uh, that allows the demon to do is is to let you take part in the new the new age movement. And I'm just like, what? Are we afraid of the new age movement? What 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 is, year is this from? Anyway, it's back to the story. Uh, so th- there's there's a lot of stuff with this, and it it falls into this something called the uh, idea motor effect, which is this sort of uh, Heisenberg principle, but for dumb belief ghost shit. Uh, so it's like, oh, you know, like Ouija boards and stuff all fall into this category. That if you're told, oh, a, a ghost is actually taking control here, then you you let things happen or be willing to believe things. But anyway, the most famous case of automatic writing in the ghost world uh, involves the Borley Rectory. And the Borley Rectory uh, is called the most haunted home in England. And starting in like the 12th century, uh, there was a church nearby uh, and uh, a monk from there was having an affair with a nearby nun. uh, And as punishment, they killed the monk, but they bricked up the nun into a wall while she was still alive. So, you know, sexism in uh, Christ murder uh, starts back there. Uh, so, like, it's from around there, and this house over the years has burned down uh, a bunch of times, and then they just keep rebuilding it. Uh, and at some point, it becomes Borley Hall, uh, where this guy has, like, 14 children there, and they keep uh, doing these additions to it. So Borley Hall's here, like people keep uh, rebuilding this place, even though it burns down. There's always ghostly stuff. And the ghostly stuff around it that's reported over the years includes like headless horsemen and other things that you think are like confined to other mythological like horror stories and things like they they all sort of happen around this house, uh, which is uh, which is very fun. Uh, So that starts in the 12th century. There's a lot of it in the 1800s. and then this family moves in in like 1928 and 1929 uh, and they get in uh, and they come across uh, a brown paper package and the wife opens it up. And inside the bay paper package, just like in the movie seven, it's the skull of a young woman. She it's, it's literally a head in a box. Uh, and they were like, well, that's weird. And then the, the family starts hearing sounds. They have bells ringing. They have lights appearing all over the place. They have horse-drawn carriages and more headless horsemen. Uh, and so they put out a call uh, to, like, the Ghost Hunters Society. And the first real ghost hunter, the, the president of the society, which in my head, he just, like, founded, like, the Magician Society. But he's the first magician. And his name is Harry Price, because, of course, it is. Uh, he comes out and starts, like, living at the place to, like, record, figure out what's happening here. And as he gets there, shit really kicks up a notch. Uh, people start having mirrors broken. Uh, all this stuff really gets out of control. Uh, and then he leaves and it all stops. And so here's, uh, as part of all that stuff, both him and uh, the wife here uh, were doing all this automatic writing. They were constantly writing things on walls and being like, there's a ghost 
uh, in charge of me. Uh, and it is making me write these things on the wall. And the things that they were writing. <laughs> it's like really passive aggressive shit. It was. It was like get help or like give me some space. Like r- actual passive aggressive shit. The dishes uh, need to be so, done again. <laughs> yeah. Just real sitcom husband bullshit. Uh, so what it turned out to be uh, after after they do like a year and a half of this and they document it and he writes it up as this book and it's regarded as like the first full-on documentation of a haunting uh it turns out that the wife was having a sexual relationship with their lodger a guy named frank pearlless which is also just a great name uh and so she started faking a lot of the ghost stuff uh and especially the automatic writing to distract from the affair she was having but the the ghost hunter as well was also faking his side of it and they were never in cahoots they didn't know the other one was doing it so they started believing the, the haunting was real, but they were still like, but I, I thought I was making it up, but uh, price got busted uh, because it, while he was there, all those windows were getting broken and people were constantly getting hit by things. And at one point, another uh, like journalist was out there and turned around just as price was throwing a rock from his pocket at him. That's what price had been doing the whole time, <laughs> just walking around the house, throwing rocks at things. And I can't imagine. It must've been the most awkward moment in the world when it's like price. What you got there, bud? Is that is that a is that a small rock? <laughs> what you what you doing there? Uh, so the world's biggest uh, like case, like it's a multi year event of like automatic writing and and this giant haunted house with hundreds of years of history basically winds up using automatic writing to hide a guy trying to get famous and a woman cheating on her husband with their renter, uh, which I just. Uh, the Borley Rectory, uh, which BBC, if you don't have a show called Borley Rectory, and it doesn't even have to be about that place. It's just a very British sounding thing. You should just have a show called Borley Rectory. Anyway, uh, for the carrying into the void here, um, I uh, took some time, turned out the lights, put some candles on uh, like it was date night, and I did automatic writing. So my care into the void here at, from a certain point. <laughs> Uh, is is automatic writing so and i have not looked at this since i did this a couple of weeks ago in preparation so uh, here we go uh low and it was written as it was rewritten of all things remember this in the word of the spirit that now guides my hand that last which evolution make this taste under crime bite whatever we do now (laughs) happening when it does not and never will that's where awe in the end, other magnets grab me for Fort Take, which is where we go. Palm upon dawn, haste palms, thought go away now, though that's what lost last for lunch. And war there three, no log, ash last, splattering happen over again. And so it was written. And so it was written, so let it be done. Splattering happen over again. So say we all. <laughs> oh, I'm so happy with this episode. It's so good <laughs> uh, I'm Brock Wilbur. You can find me online at Brock Wilbur uh, doing stuff. Uh, you can check out my podcast with my wife, Missouri Loves Company, and my emo podcast, The Coolest Kids. I also have a Silent Hill podcast called Less Than Silent Hills Now, uh, which is uh, just fun and dumb and like once a month just working through the series so no one has to play the games if you don't want to. Tell us about the Silent Hill podcast a little bit. 
Oh, uh, my friend Rachel, uh, who's a comedian out of Boston, uh, she and I started a Twitter conversation like a year ago. Uh, she doesn't play games, but she loves watching Let's Plays of Silent Hill games. Yes, that is totally almost more fun than playing the actual games. It, it absolutely is. And we got into a discussion about how, like, some of the games, especially the early ones, are, like, oppressively difficult to play and, like, unpleasant to do so but like there's stories there to be shared and there's no good way like looking up the wikipedia on something doesn't really cover something so the two of us were like what if we did like a recap show where once a month for like the next year we just work through some of the stuff here so we did the first one and the first one i i bought a playstation 3 so i could finally play the original ps1 game and it fucking sucked it was so hard tank controls were out of control the controls man oh yeah i was gonna say and, and the story was bad but also i've got like a a I got a new job and I got a little money. So I got us a 4k TV and I'm trying to play a PS one graphics game on a 4k TV. And it, it made my eyes feel like they were going to bleed. And I was like, this is, this is too much. So I'm excited to do silent Hill two next, but also that ramp up in difficulty on a podcast to go from like silent Hill one and being like, let's figure out how we like do jokes to silent Hill two, maybe the greatest video game of all time. It's like, okay, that second episode's got to get real better real fast. So that's me. Are you, are you going to watch the movies interspersed in there? Yes, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Get angry about those endings all over again. I mean, the first movie, is it, what, it's a beautifully, uh, mostly physical effects. And like, it's if you could watch a movie just for the production quality of like the, the locations and like walls, like I, I still love it for at least that. Is that the one where it, it ends like they're in the house and it pans out and it's like, oh, but he's still in hell. Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I remember getting really mad at that ending. Famously, that film, there's the entire Sean Bean plotline, and they filmed it later because the studio was afraid of having a movie that was just about three women. Uh, so that's why nothing oh, in his forbid. 30 minutes of screen time has anything to do with what happens. So Ugh. anyway, Jordan, where can people find you? All right, so you can mostly find me on my Dread Singles Twitter account, which is at Hottest Singles. You can also... Find t-shirts I make at voidmerch.net. And now I am also on an actual play role-playing game for the Invisible Sun game from Monty Cook Games, which is on the At Web DM Show Twitch channel. I am so fucking excited to finally watch you do that. I, I'm sorry I missed the first episode, but I will catch well, up. Well, it's on VOD, Brock. You can watch it right now. I will. Um, so, so that game is fun. I'm also, in writing, going to be writing for... The um, City of Mist role-playing Yay! game and that's upcoming. I'm going to be doing like a weird Jack of Doors, Ripper of the Mist kind of character for them. Um, so those are some of the places and there'll be more coming up that I can talk about at awesome. a later date. So that's about it for me. That's it for me. All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Remember that we love it reading your either glowing or angry reviews telling us everything we got wrong on wherever you listen from your podcast so leave us a rating in either a rant or a compliment and we love seeing that so remember keep your teeth sharp and mini and your hearts dark and true see you next time thank you everybody goodbye <laughs>